0: Lord, hear the prayer of our hearts today. We offer and bring our hearts before you today. Our King and Master and Lord, our Savior. We ask that you will come and seal our hearts. Even this day, Lord, we ask that you, who are the living eternal word, would come with your particular specific word for this day to our hearts, not simply for information, but for transformation, that we might be changed. Lord, you alone hold the words of eternal life. There's no one else and there's nowhere else that we can turn to. So we turn to you today. Come now, Lord, I pray. Speak, for we are listening to hear from you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, I don't know if you've ever thought about when the time comes for you to die, but um, if you have at all, perhaps you've thought about what it is that you would like to have said of you at that time. I have thought about that, and if I were to have a gravestone, which I don't know that I'll have, but if I were to have a gravestone, one of the things that I've Always said I would desire to have written on that gravestone would be the words, He was a friend of God. And this morning, as we continue our study in the book of James on faith that works, we're going to be Unpacking together what it means to be a friend of God, being God's friend. So if you have your Bible, would you please turn with me to James chapter 2, which is, if you're using the Bible located in the seat in front of you, it's in page 855 in your Bible in front of you. Pull it up in your own Bible, your smartphone, wherever it is, but please come with me to James chapter 2, and we're going to be specifically focusing our attention this morning on James 2, 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such Faith saved them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But what someone will say, Well, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Will you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called, say it with me, God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So this morning we're going to keep our eye on the ball. We're going to be looking at, beginning with the story of Abraham what it means to be God's friend. So now, take the Bible that you have with you and turn back towards the beginning, to the first book of the Bible, back to the book of Genesis. And we're going to begin the story of Abraham, which I just reread this morning again. I just, this is such a wonderful uh, story. I encourage you, and we of course won't have time to read it all this morning, but. I just want to remind you of some particular highlights in the story of Abraham because those highlights are going to help us kind of unpack this understanding of what James is bringing to us about being God's friend. I mean, you'll find Abraham's story throughout the New Testament scriptures. Um, He's referred to by uh, many of the uh, New Testament writers who speak of Abraham, the father of the faith, and so his story is important as it connects to our story here this morning. At the end of Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, this is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot, and while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there, and Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. So Abraham's father was actually the one who began the journey towards Canaan. He was the one that was was bringing his family towards the promised land. But when he got to Haran, he settled there. And that is a a key, you know, I'm not going to preach there this morning, but I just want to remind you that when God has called us somewhere, when he is taking us on a journey of obedience to him, when he has given us a destiny and a destination towards which we are called to go, sometimes in our lives there can be a temptation to settle for something less or something else than God's persistent and perfect plan for our lives. There is always the temptation to settle for something less than or something else than God's purposes, promises, and plans. So that's the setup to Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram now, so the Lord speaks to Abram. So Abram picks up the mantle from his father, Terah, and he says, leave your country, your people, and your household, and go to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed Through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And listen to this. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran, took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So Abram does what the Lord has promised, and he receives what the Lord has promised, purposed what the Lord has spoken to him to do and in the midst of that the Lord promises him I'm going to make you into a great nation I'm going to bless you I'll make your name great you'll be a blessing I'm going to bless those who will bless you and whoever curses you I'll curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you this is the blessing of Abraham now to become a great nation in order for Abraham to become a great nation what does he need what does he and Sarah need to become a great nation children, kids. It's hard to become a great nation if it's just Abram and Sarai. And they're 75 years old. Now, when they get towards Cain, here it tells us in, in chapter 13, we have this story of Abram and Lot and, and the separation of their uh, lands and what happens there. And then in chapter 14, you have... Uh, Lot, who ends up in the midst of this um, civil war that's going on among kings in the area, and Lot is taken into captivity with all of his family, and they are taken, both the family and all their possessions and everything else, are uh, kidnapped and, and, and taken off into captivity, and Abram comes back with 318 of his trained men, and he goes and fights against the kings, and he wins this great battle, and he brings Lot back, and he brings all of his family back, and I don't know if this is one of those moments like Elijah experienced after his great um, battle against the prophets of Baal, but perhaps after this, I mean, by this point, Abram is about 86 years old, another 11 years have gone by, and Abram is probably at this point getting just a little bit tired. Because he's just fought this great battle. And how many of you know, how many of you have ever heard the acronym HALT? Ever heard of the HALT? That's right. you got it, girl. All right. We are most vulnerable when we are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And I'm guessing that perhaps Abraham was a little bit of all of those things with perhaps the greatest emphasis on the tired. And so he and Sarah have been waiting for all of these years they've been waiting for this promise of Genesis 12 to come true. And he comes to verse 15, and it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Listen to this, verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abram's ready to settle. He's ready to settle for something less, something else than God's promise. Because he's weary, he's tired. He's been waiting a long time. But here it is. Listen to this. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And then he points up into the heavens and he says, Look up and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Let's listen together to verse 6, because this is a critical moment, not only in Abram's life, but in the life of faith, the life of every one of us. This is sort of that critical first step in being God's friend. What does it say in verse 6? Abram, what? Believed. Believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the first time in the scriptures that the word belief is used. And Abram is the first one. This is why he is known as the father of the faith. He is the first one who hears the voice of God and responds in an act of faith and trust, and says, I believe you. But the testing wasn't done, was it? Because then you get to chapter 16, and he's still waiting for a kid. And Sarai's womb is still closed, and what do we do? And so... Chapter 16, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And we know that from the stories that goes on that she has Ishmael. And, of course, that creates all kinds of problems in the home. Sarai, Hagar's kind of holding it over Sarai. Sarai gets embittered against Hagar. She says she's got to go. Her son's got to go. Abraham's torn, doesn't know what to do. But Hagar goes off. God speaks to Hagar, tells her, I'm going to protect you, Ishmael. When She's out you know, crying in the wilderness. And uh, verse 11 The angel of the Lord said to her, you're now with child, you'll have a son, you'll name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. And then it continues to unfold. The Lord takes care of them. Now, go to chapter 17. And somebody tell me, sermon points available, how old is Abraham as we get to chapter 17? All right, you guys can read, good, all right. When he was ninety nine years old. So how long has it been since the promise of Genesis chapter 12? How many years? 24 years. He was 75 years old when he started out. Now he's 99 years old and still what? No obvious fulfillment of the promise. And so these visitors come and the visitors are, well, first of all, there's the, the covenant of circumcision. And the Lord says, you know, um, I'm going to, uh, the, the, you're going to, the, the covenant of circumcision is God's way of establishing this relationship with Abram. And so verse 15, after they go through the circumcision, um, well, verse 13, wh- wh- whether born in your household or brought, bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, Abraham, verse 15, As for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. And I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Now, this is so interesting. Verse 17. I don't know, I've read this story how many times, but I, for whatever, I'd overlooked this. Abraham fell face down and laughed. Now, we always hear about Sarah laughing, but Abraham's laughing too. He's like, ah, sure. <laughs> Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? She's a spring chicken, she's 10 years younger. She's only 90. And Abraham had said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And God said, yes, but your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son. And you'll call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I heard you, and I'll surely bless him and make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. Now, then the three visitors come, and they tell Abraham the same thing. They confirm this promise. Verse 10, Genesis 18, keep with me. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well-advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. bearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, well, after I'm worn out and my master is old, now I'm going to have? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yeah, you did. You laughed. All right. So then we have more of the story in Sodom and Gomorrah and all of those things in Abraham and uh, Abimelech, And then you get into the birth of Isaac in Genesis 21 And then we come to this part of the story that James references in Genesis chapter 22. So let's go there, and here's where we're going to kind of draw to a close our story of Abraham this morning. He's finally had the son of his promise. God has finally answered the prayer when it seemed like it was past time and there was never going to be any more opportunity for he and Sarah to have children, they have kids. And we know in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we have that great declaration from Abraham. He believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, but I want you to understand that there was still this process of testing going on. It wasn't like he was unwavering through all of this. It wasn't like he was perfect in all of it, but there was something, a seed in his heart that had been established, and now we see it coming to fruition in Genesis 22. Now what had been wavering, God finally answered that prayer, that promise that he had made to Abraham when he was old. It took 25 years for it to happen, but it happened. And then in Genesis chapter 22, sometime later, so we don't know exactly how long this was later, but it was a while later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. God, we've tried to not settle for something less or something else than your promise and your purpose in our lives, and now you have finally come through and you've fulfilled, and now you want me to take and sacrifice how is this nation going to be built? Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set, it out for the, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then listen to what he says, and then we will come back to you. There's, there's this seed of, of faith and trust in Abraham. And he took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his dad, to his father Abraham, Dad, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" And Abraham answered, well, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, here's the promise again reaffirmed. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Say that with me, because you've obeyed me. So now we get the second clue to this being a friend of God. And this is the point of what James is bringing us into understanding, and this is the point that the Lord wants to emphasize into our hearts today. The story begins with the promise of God spoken to Abraham. Abraham back in Genesis 12, reaffirmed in Genesis 15. And by faith, Abraham reaches out to lay hold of the promise of God that has been given and sent to him by God's grace. But then comes that necessity of time and testing where that faith is refined and it comes to a place, and the culmination of that in Genesis 22, where Abraham lives out that faith in his obedience to the Lord. And so it is that those are the the tines on the key to unlocking being a friend of God. 2 Chronicles 27, recounting this story, says, Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So now come back with me to James chapter 2. Come back with me to James chapter 2. Verse 20, you foolish man, do you want evidence the faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, men and women of God down through the centuries have wrestled with this because it appears that there is a contradiction between what Paul says and what James says. So the question that, we need to ask ourselves this morning is, is James' message contradictory to Paul's message? Martin Luther struggled with this mightily through the Reformation by faith alone. And then James comes along and says, you're not saved by your faith alone. So how do we resolve this apparent contradiction Romans 3.28, Paul says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then James comes along in 2.24 and says, you see a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So I want to offer you a way of understanding this because I think this becomes critical to our understanding of growing maturity. Remember, we're, going to, we're coming back. The reason we're doing James is at the end of this year is because God is calling us as a congregation and as a people of God to continue to grow up in maturity. And to grow up in maturity, we need to understand what that maturity really means. So let's look at this for a moment. Paul's message and James' message. Contradictory or complementary I would submit to you that I believe that they're complementary messages when you understand them in the context of all of what James says and all of what Paul says and the entirety of Scripture. We understand and see this that Paul's message has to do with how we are originally made righteous before God, our salvation, as it were. And James's message is that that righteousness is validated by your works. We are justified by faith and it's validated by that. Which we do. So, Paul's message really is going after the root of what happens at salvation. James's message is after the fruit, what happens after salvation. And Paul's message focuses in on the grace of God, and James's message focuses in on our response to that grace, our part. So, Paul's message is about justification, James's is about validation. Paul's message is about the root, what happens at salvation. James's message is about the fruit, what happens after salvation. Paul's message is God's part. James' message is our part. Well, what on earth does that have to do with me sitting here in 2014 on September 27th here at Bethel Christian Fellowship in St. Paul, Minnesota? Please, Pastor, would you relate this now to my life? Okay, I'm glad you desire for that to happen. Because to understand growing maturity and to understand what it means to be a friend of God, we need to understand that it is faith and works. Say that with me. Faith and works. Say it again. Faith and works. One more time. Faith and works. If you read through the passage here in James 2 carefully, you'll discover that James says three things about what faith is when it is without works. The first thing he says is that faith without works is empty. When it says there, oh foolish person, it really means if you were literally translating it, you would say, you empty fellow. What do we say when somebody is, we, we talk about empty promises or we say that somebody is an empty suit, what are we saying? We're saying they're, they're all, it's all external, there's all kinds of stuff on the outside, but inside there's no there there. Some of you old enough to remember, wasn't it our own beloved uh, Fritz Mondale who used that, you know, that great line when he was, when Dan Quayle, whatever, Where's the beef? Yeah. Remember that one? Where's the beef? What he was saying is, where's the substance? Where is that? And James says, faith without works, if there is no evidence, if there is no external reality to this, all it is is like an empty suit. It is without substance. Not only that, faith without works is useless. The literal word there is it is sterile. There is no potency. This is why the Abraham story becomes important, because Abraham's faith was not sterile. It had potency. Even in his old age, even after 25 years of waiting, his faith resulted in an action of obedience to the Lord. It had potency. It had influence and impact on the world. Faith without works is without impact. It is without influence. It has no potency, no power. Faith without works is dead, which literally means what? Without life. (laughs) That would be the technical definition of dead. No life. as he says in James 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. If you go to a funeral home, if you go to a morgue, and you see a body, a person that has died, and the spirit has left, in the same way, faith without works is a corpse. There is no life to it. So, if that's true, if faith, without works is empty and useless and dead, then the opposite must be true. And so faith with works is, first of all, the word I'm using here instead of the opposite of empty, I tried to come up with the best word I could think of, and it's full bodied. There, there's, there's, it's full. Uh, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, it says, now faith is confidence, or it's the assurance in what we hope for, or confidence in what we hope for, and the assurance about what we do not see. It is the substance, some of your translations, faith is the substance of that which we hope for. In other words, we don't see it, and yet it has substance. That's what faith is about. There's something to it that, that, that has some weight to it. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then later in verses 17 and 19 of the same chapter, the the great hall of faith. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Here the writer in Hebrews is coming back to that same passage, critical passage. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead And so, in a manner of speaking, he did raise Isaac back from the dead. Abraham held on and acted in obedience because his faith was full. It was full-bodied. It had a substance to it. It wasn't just empty. It wasn't simply mere sentiment. Faith is not a hallmark card. It has substance. It's not just mere sentiment. A mature faith. A mature faith is useful. Faith with works is useful. Remember Jesus' parable um, in in Matthew 25? We're going to be studying Matthew next, so we'll be getting to Matthew 25 sometime this millennium. And um, when we get there, we're going to be talking about these great um, apocalyptic Parables that Jesus shares at the end of Matthew, and one of those is in Matthew 25, and it's I'm just quoting a part of that parable. Then the king will say to those on his right, "This is the sheep and the goats parable. Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink." I was a stranger and you invited me, and I needed clothes and you clothed me, and I was sick and you looked after me, and I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the king will reply Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Faith with works is useful, it is potent, it makes a difference. It impacts and influences the world around it. It's that kind of faith which brings beauty out of ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that is an oak of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and begins to rebuild and begins to restore. The faith that works makes a difference in the world. We've seen the church. I mean, I I, I recently read an an article in... um, it was very powerful in Christianity Today. You can go back and look it up on, on, on Christianity Today's website. And it's, it was a, 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 a cover article about the impact of missions upon the world. And this researcher did all of this incredible research uh, using all kinds of sources. I mean, he, he, like, in-depth, peer-reviewed research that took out other factors and the conclusion was, the greatest force for societal transformation that the world has ever seen has been the missionary movement, which has had incredible impact. Sometimes the story today is all about how missionary, you know, all, all of it was simply uh, white, western, um, you know, um, belligerence and, and bullying and... And coming in and destroying cultures and all of that sort of thing. And that's the that's kind of the narrative that's spoken about. You know, we've got our issues, okay? We can be honest about that, that there were things perhaps that weren't always done the best. But in the large scheme of things, the reality is the greatest force for transformation societally has been the proclamation of the gospel and the extension of the kingdom. Bar none. I mean, completely way above and beyond anything else. It's useful. It is. Faith without, with works is not mere words, it's action. And finally, it is life-giving. I always say this, and you've heard me say this many times here. I'll say it again. If you ask me, pastor, give me one word to describe Jesus, Hands down, the word I would use is Jesus is life-giving. Everywhere Jesus went, life broke out. Right? He's life-giving. Oh, there's a lot of other things we could say about him. But ultimately, he was life-giving. And 1 John 3, 16 to 18, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we had to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has Material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them. How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love with words, not let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Faith with works is not merely head, it's not merely our head knowledge, it is our heart and our hands extended as Jesus did for us. So here, Jane, I mean, John, the Apostle John uses love. James talks about faith, but both of them, love and faith, this relationship with God results in a heart that's transformed and warmed with compassion that necessarily results in hands being reached out in care and concern. Do you see this? So how do we describe, I've been wrestling, even this morning I've been wrestling with how to describe what it means to have, to be a friend of God. And the working definition that I've come up with is is that a, a friend of God fully receives God's grace by faith and willingly remains in his love and obediently releases his life into a broken and hurting world. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But I want to close by giving you some really good news. Because maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, "Ah, it's great to talk about Abraham and he believed God and these promises and and all of that stuff. And, And he's like this giant, towering figure who is completely inaccessible to me, is I'm certainly not Abraham. Because we just met Abraham, and we know that we ain't no Abraham, right? But here's what I love about James, and here's what I love about what he does. Because the story doesn't end with Abraham. This is what's cool. The story doesn't end with Abraham. Abraham. Go to your scripture, go to James 2. Come on, are you there? Verse 25? What does it say, verse 25? What does it start with? What are the first words of of verse 25? In the same way, what? In the same way, what? Not even? Rahab! Rahab the what? The prostitute. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Go to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua 2. You remember what happens in Joshua 2. They've surrounded Jericho. And they send in the spies. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. And the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men. Who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had set out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, and the two kings of the Ammonites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please. Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from our death. Our lives for your lives. The men assured her if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And the men said to her, verse 17, well, she says, go, now she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers won't find you. Hide yourself there for three days until they return and then go on your way. And the men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you've tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you brought your father and mother and everybody into the house. And she says, agreed. And They make this covenant together. But Here's, what I, here, here's the point of what I want us to see this morning. We may not be Abraham. But we certainly, you know, we, we, we may not be as good as Abraham, but we can be as good as Rahab. Good in parentheses here. Because no one's good before God. But, but I, want to rec- I want us to recognize it's not only this friendship with God is not only laid aside for those like Father Abraham who are the pillars, but it is also for the Rahabs, the caterpillars. The ones who seem so vulnerable, so powerless, so weak, like you and like me. It's to us that this is given. And look at what it says. I love this in Matthew 1. I mean, Matthew, when he's doing his, his um, genealogy, says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. I just love this about Jesus. Here in this this hierarchical culture where where the, the male, you know, all of the genealogy, and here shows up in the middle of that genealogy, Rahab, the prostitute, who is part of this great lineage of God, and the great lineage of Jesus, and great lineage of faith, and friendship with God. Hebrews 11, 31, in the great hall of faith, there with Abraham and Moses and all of the other great figures and Joshua and all these great men of faith. Here is this great woman of faith, Rahab, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She's not a great woman of faith because she was a prostitute. She's a great woman of faith, because she was a friend of God who was obedient, who believed that the Lord was the God of heaven and earth, and responded and acted out of that belief. And thus was saved. And so we come to our close in John 15. The last scripture. I love this scripture. It's one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. As a father have loved me, so have I have loved you. Now remain in my love. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So let me come back to my working definition of friendship with God. I'll say it a little more slowly this time. A friend of God fully receives God's grace by faith. That gift that is offered, that promise that is given, the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins, we receive that grace. It always begins with grace. This friendship with God, the relationship with God, is always, listen to this, it is always initiated by God. We don't reach out to him first. He reaches out to us first. Right? Aren't you glad that he reached out to you? Are you glad that he reached out to you? I'm so glad. For his grace. Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Right? Because at the grace of God, we receive that grace by faith. And then we remain in his love, as it says in John 15 here. We remain, we rest, we we find our abiding place in that love that He has for us and that we then respond towards Him with. We remain in that love. And then it results in there is a release through our lives into the world of that love relationship that we have with Him. It begins with Him. It ends with Him. And in between, it's all Him. But it's His grace, our faith, responding to that with action, faith and works that brings transformation to the world around us. And walls are rebuilt. And instead of walls, there's bridges built. And Instead of ruins, things begin to happen and transformation begins to come. I don't know about you, but I want that kind of mature faith. Anybody else want that kind of mature faith? I want that mature faith that means being a friend of God. And so let's stand to our feet. And if you... uh, I'm going to give a uh, benediction in a moment, but if you feel like the Lord is prompting you to respond in some way specifically this morning, and maybe you realize that there's a step that he's inviting you to take today, and maybe you've somehow fallen on either side of the divide and you've done faith without works or It's just as empty to have works without faith. We need both working together, integrated into our lives. Maybe you've been doing lots of stuff, but it hasn't been flowing out of abiding in him. Maybe you've been abiding in him, but there just doesn't seem to be the fruit flowing. As we sing this great hymn of surrender, if you want to come to the altar, you can do so then I'm going to give a prayer of benediction this morning. It's been a challenging word to my own soul today and perhaps to yours. But as I said when I began, my my heart's desire is that at the end of the day, I might be known and that we might be known as friends of God. So this song is, Take My Life and Let It Be. Consecrated, Lord, to you. And everything that I have, I want to give to you now. I want to allow that love that you have for me, that grace that I've responded to by faith to be released in the world around me. Let's sing it. And if you want to come to the altar, it's open. Here we go. And now with hands open, receive the benediction this morning. Lord Jesus, you see these hands opened before you as an expression of hearts that are open to you today and spirit that are unfolded before you, Lord. And God, we pray that you would take your word that you have spoken to us today and plant it deeply in our souls. Lord Jesus, that you would continue to take us and develop us and grow us into that mature faith in you. And now I pray, for my brothers and sisters here, that each one may be filled afresh even this very day with the immeasurable love of God the Father, with the irresistible and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, with the inexhaustible strength and power, comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours. As you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations, go with the banner of His favor over your lives. And until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home. I pray that his love and mercy and goodness will chase you down every day of your life for his glory in Jesus' name.